fertilizers in uh, Arizona. Paul and Rob? Yep. Hi. Okay, we're ready to go. Good afternoon and welcome to the February Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast. Our topic for February is cervicogenic dizziness. My name is Ethan Hood. I'm a physical therapist. I'm the assistant director at the St. Luke's Warren Hospital Balance Center and St. Luke's Warren Hospital Concussion Center in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. I'll be your moderator for today. As part of our panel, we have uh, two wonderful experts. We have Rob Lindell, who's a physical therapist. He's a professor of clinical physical therapy, director of the Doctor of Physical Therapy Program, and director of the Clinical Residency Program at the University of Southern California. And we have Paul Vidal, who is the owner of Specialized Physical Therapy in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He's a physical therapist as well, and he's also an adjunct professor at several Philadelphia-area universities. So first of all, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, as far as cervicogenic dizziness, um, can you guys describe essentially what cervicogenic dizziness is? Uh, I guess I can go first. Sure. Um, basically, it's, uh, it results from a mismatch between the somatosensory information that your brain is getting about your head position in space, uh, that, that information coming from the neck, and uh, mismatch between that information and what your uh, vestibular system is telling you and what your eyes are telling you. So I guess the simplest way to explain it would be if you turned your head 10 degrees to the right and your eyes said you went 10 degrees to the right and your vestibular system, your ears, said you went 10 degrees to the right, but your neck said you went 15 degrees to the right or 5 degrees to the right, your brain uh, really doesn't know what to do with that mismatch and... Uh, you end up getting feelings of uh, lightheadedness, lightheaded in the sense that my head feels light, not lightheadedness like mm -hmm. uh, pre-syncope or passing out. And so that, that confusion is where the symptoms come from. Okay. Now, now Paul, are, are there certain pathologies that we see cervicogenic dizziness with? Yeah, I would say uh, if we're talking about cervicogenic dizziness, a large part, I guess, would be dealt with whiplash-associated disorders, uh, say motor vehicle accidents. Um, we see a lot of that in the post-concussion uh, population. Uh, but other conditions such as cervical spondylosis um, uh, or even just simple muscle spasms can uh, uh, contribute to symptoms of cervicogenic dizziness. Um, I think, too, uh, what I also, you know, would call like other trauma, so to speak, is just uh, faulty posture, uh, namely the more common forward head posture I think uh, affects the area that uh, of the upper neck that is uh, particularly involved with cervicogenic dizziness. Now, can that happen with the utterly over time, or is it more of like a, a younger type of postural abnormality that you see it with? Uh, it can happen over time, naturally, I would think, but I think it also can happen after injury. Okay. Um, and then you develop an acute, uh, say, uh, um, just from muscle spasms. I think that could happen. Okay. Now, now, Rob, from, from a neurologic perspective, what exactly causes the dizziness? What exactly happens in your neck um, to essentially cause the dizziness? Well, again, it goes back to this, this sensory mismatch, and um, it's, uh, it's not uncommon. I mean, seasickness is another example of where you can have these, uh, you know, you get symptoms, as a result of a sensory mismatch, in this case, seasickness. Let's say you're in a, you're down below decks, and and your eyes 
to your eyes, the environment looks like it's very stable. Nothing's moving, but, of course, the ship is rocking and rolling, pitching yaw and everything. And uh, your, soma your somatosensory and vestibular systems pick that up. Uh, and the mismatch between what your eyes are telling you, that everything is stable, and what your other two senses are telling you, that everything's moving, causes this, um, you know, these symptoms. And, and if you're on a boat, we call that seasickness, and nobody really has a problem with that as a cause for those symptoms. Uh, but what we're thinking is going on in cervicogenic dizziness is the same kind of mismatch. Okay. And probably uh, the the greatest uh, amount of misinformation coming from the neck is coming from uh, not necessarily the joint proprioceptors, but from uh, the muscles, the muscle spindles okay. uh, themselves. Is, is it the entire neck uh, or is it a certain segment of the neck that generally will cause it? Generally, it's the upper cervical spine, or, or definitely going to be the upper cervical spine, although lower cervical segments can also be involved. But certainly, um, in order for your vestibular ocular reflex to work, uh, you know, if I move my head 10 degrees to the right, normally the vestibular ocular reflex, or, or VOR, would move my eyes 10 degrees in the opposite direction. So there's a very close association between head movement and eye movement, and most of those movements, uh, and particularly small, um, you know, very small movements of the head are occurring in the upper cervical spine. So that's a key area. Okay. So what you're saying is, is that the afferent information from the upper cervical spine is, is kind of fed back into your brain and combined with the vestibular information um, for orientation and space. And if there's any mismatch between the two, that's when the person generally is going to feel dizzy. Correct. V vestibular and visual information. Okay. Okay. Paul, is, is, is there a classic presentation for cervicogenic dizziness, that, 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 that classic person that walks into your clinic that, that is really easy to pick up? And, and what kind of symptoms are they going to present with? I would say the classic presentation, what I would look for, is usually uh, the, a relationship between, uh, say, neck pain and dizziness, however the, however the patient is describing their dizziness, whether it's a sense of being off-balance, lightheaded, what have you. But usually that temporal relationship, say, if the neck pain feels worse, their dizziness is worse, um, or the dizziness is not as bad when their neck is not hurting as, as bad. The other thing is that other causes of dizziness would be excluded or ruled out, so that potentially the you know the diagnosis of cervicogenic dizziness is then more um, uh, tenable because everything else has been excluded. But I, I kind of look for that relationship. I look to see if there is a mechanism of injury such as trauma or whiplash that would have brought these symptoms on, uh, and they may have limited neck range of motion, um, imbalance, complaints of dizziness. Uh, maybe even headache. Um, yeah, so that would be, to me, kind of a classic presentation. Okay. Are, are, if I can add also sure. um, to that, sorry about that, um, that the um, the patient often has a difficulty describing exactly what their symptoms are. So there are some patients who will actually say, yeah, I'm dizzy, but the dizziness is not necessarily spinning or, uh, or you know, a vertigo sensation of movement, but uh, they may use the word dizziness, but other people um, will have a difficulty really ex explaining or describing exactly what that symptom is. And uh, in combination, uh, as Paul was saying, with a history of trauma, neck pain, and neck pain associated with the dizziness, then 
uh, you hear that difficulty of trying to describe what it feels like, and uh, it really leads me to the next. Okay. Are, are there any special tests for cervix dizziness, or is it more of a diagnosis of exclusion? Rob, you can answer that. Sorry. Sure. Um, there's no single test uh, at this point in time, and, and actually that has led to a fair amount of controversy in the literature about whether it actually exists or not because there is no single test. Um, but there are things that you tend to find um, uh, along with the subjective components we just talked about. Uh, on the physical exam, you will find um, tenderness in the upper cervical region. You will find generally hypomobilities in the upper cervical region. Um, and you will find difficulty with head positioning, mm -hmm. uh, particularly repositioning to center. So uh, what we call joint position error is off. More than four and a half degrees would be considered uh, abnormal. Um, there are there's some suggestion that your ocular movements are, are also affected. So there's a test called the smooth pursuit neck torsion test, where you do uh, you follow a target with your eyes using smooth pursuit with your head in neutral, and then you repeat the test with your head rotated 45 degrees to the left, and then repeat it 45 degrees to the right. And uh, the patient is unable to keep their eyes on the moving target when their head is rotated. Uh, as compared to when their head is in neutral. So that tends, that seems to be a, a sign of uh, some cervical involvement as well. Okay. Uh, there are some postural changes, in particular if you add vibration to the head or neck, and uh, patients with cervical dizziness tend to have a higher degree of sway uh, under those conditions. Okay. Is there any sensitivity to the neck torsion test, or is it still a little controversial? It's still controversial. Um, the original article that um, uh, in 1998 that, that looked at this, uh, they published their sensitivity and specificity numbers, but they didn't publish the numbers on which they calculated the sensitivity and specificity. So they reported a specificity of 0.91, mm -hmm. um, but um, again, they didn't report the numbers upon which those were based. So um, it has been reproduced several times mm -hmm. in other uh, articles, but um, it's still a bit controversial. Okay. Paul, are, are there any other pathologies that possibly mimic cervical joint dizziness, and how would you rule them out, essentially? Yeah, that's a great question, because a lot of times you'll have dizziness with neck movement or change uh, in body position. I think the two that come to mind especially after trauma, if we're talking, say, a whiplash-associated disorder, um, at least the, the two that come to mind it would be to rule out BPPV, but also to rule out any uh, impairments or um, complications with the vertebral basilar system or a vertebral basilar insufficiency. Um, so, you know, there's no, I guess, 100% way to fully figure those out, but I think there's some hallmark signs or symptoms that, you, that may help you uh, figure out if it's cervicogenic dizziness, BPPV, or VBI. For instance, we know with BPPV, we'll have the classic horizontal rotary nystagmus with positional changing, lasting for a few seconds, maybe up to a minute, and it goes away, and there's no true neurological signs that occur with that. 
uh, and cervicogenic dizziness. It's been known for the last, say, minutes, maybe even hours, but typically there's no nystagmus involved with mm. that. Vertebral days of insufficiency. If you maintain someone in that position, in theory, if they have any nystagmus, maybe vertical nystagmus, it should be a sign of central involvement or, or decreased blood flow to the brain. That those symptoms would stay there as long as you kept them there, which that's not an ideal thing to do. But um, you know, those are maybe th things you can look at to help tease those three things out. Okay, so you're, you're really trying to rule out any type of neurological signs first of all. Right. That's the main thing. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I would add to that that uh, with uh, VBI, it rarely occurs without neurologic signs, mm -hmm. uh, along with the, the insufficiency. So with cervicogenic dizziness, you're not going to get neurologic problems. Mm -hmm. So if, if right. you see associated neurologic problems, then uh, you know numbness, tingling, those types of things, then uh, you're probably not thinking cervicogenic dizziness. Okay. But in terms of differential diagnosis, what makes it difficult is it is you rarely injure your neck um, in in the absence of other other injuries. So for, uh, you know the, your classic thing a whiplash injury. You, yeah, you you get your neck whipped around, but you also are uh, probably sustaining you at least a mild uh, traumatic brain injury uh, in that event. Uh, yeah, granted the the airbag is softer than the steering column, but you're still going to, you know, smash your head against that and maybe smash your head against the window on the side or that kind of thing. So, and during that accident, you could also uh, knock the otoconia loose and, and develop BPPV. So, you know, in a traumatic event, you could actually have all three, a, a central problem, a peripheral problem such as BPPV, and then uh, also you've injured your neck. And sorting through that is... Um, is a bit of a challenge. Okay. Yeah. So, so basically you're looking at nystagmus, nystagmus direction, rule out any type of BPPV or peripheral versus central uh, vestibular impairment. You're looking at the neck range of motion. You're looking to see if there's painful uh, palpation, upper cervical segments, hypomobility, things like that to kind of rule out the different pathologies then. And then uh, I use joint position error a lot. That, that okay. would tell me that there's something going on in the neck. Okay. Uh, now, Ethan, if, if I could add yeah, go ahead. to that too. I think we're taught this in entry-level programs, and then it's certainly always an area of, um, of uh, controversy when you look at VBI is, is performing the vertebral artery test. Um, in my opinion, the tests are not very strong from a diagnostic accuracy standpoint. And I think, as Rob said, if there's other signs and symptoms that would suggest uh, vascular compromise, that I don't know if we need to actually use that test to kind of confirm the suspicion. I think the suspicion, if the suspicion is there, that we then refer that patient out for further workup or testing, because um, the uh, the test, uh, the tubal artery test, is certainly not without its risk, and the findings we get from that you know, may not outweigh, you know, the price you might pay for doing the test. Okay, I understand. There, there's some evidence. There's some pretty good evidence to show that people can be negative with the the classic quadrant testing and uh, still go on to have a stroke. So um, it's not a good test, and, and uh, I typically don't do it. Well, I, I just look at uh, active range of motion, and during that active range of motion, I'm asking them questions as I would anybody, and uh, they end up in that position for 10, maybe 15 seconds, 
while I'm talking to them, and I'm assessing not only for pain and extent of movement and so on, but um, you know, mentation and nystagmus and other things that would suggest there might be a compromise to the cerebral blood flow. And if there's any problem, you know, that's why we work in the, uh, within the healthcare system. I can refer them out and get them tested as Paul was saying. Okay. So, so Rob, you know, take us through, like, the typical patient that you see coming into the clinic with cervicogenic dizziness. Essentially, what are they telling you um, during your evaluation? What are the kind of the cardinal signs that you'll see that, that you can essentially diagnose it as cervicogenic dizziness? Well, the first thing I, I, I ask for, so there's two types of patients. One that comes in with neck pain, and then I'm going to ask them about dizziness and be specific about that. And then there's other patients who come to me with dizziness, and uh, particularly in, in my practice, they've been treated for other forms of dizziness, but they're still dizzy. So there's a suspicion that the neck might be involved. So it would, in the first case, the patient has neck pain, and I'm, I'm making sure they don't have any dizziness. I ask them specifically about it. And um, uh, what often they will say, in both cases what they'll say, is that um, if, if they say they're dizzy, uh, can you please describe the dizziness? And they'll have a hard time doing that, as I said. So they may say lightheaded. They may say I feel foggy. They may say I feel like I, you know, I feel like my head is a Coke can and there's a quarter rattling around in it every time I move my head. Uh, I feel like my brain is squishing around in my head. Really weird kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't write those off. The first thing I think about is well, I need to go look at the neck. That to me is sort of a cardinal sign of when they're trying to explain their dizziness. So that's number one. Okay. Um, uh, there may be some complaints of imbalance, but they're not falling. Uh, so they may feel like they're a little bit off balance. Uh, so, and then, as we said already, you know, neck pain and dizziness associated with head movements. Now, if you move your head, you're going to move your neck, and you're also moving your peripheral vestibular system. So you're pretty much... Um, uh, stimulating everything at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to try to uh, sort through that a little bit. So one of the things that I can do is if you hold the head still and move the body underneath or the so-called neck torsion nystagmus test and see whether or not that causes their symptoms. Uh, but I always follow that with holding their neck stable and then moving their head um, to see whether or not that reproduces a symptom. So that helps me sort out head versus neck uh, as a uh, potential mm-hmm. cause. Okay. Um, I definitely am going to rule out things like BPPV, so I'm going to go through my central uh, vestibular exam, my peripheral vestibular exam, including hall pipe and roll test, and, uh, and then I'll get into the neck and look at range of motion, look at uh, segmental mobility, uh, palpate for tenderness. I put a laser on the head, and I'm looking at joint position error, um, and uh, I'll do, a, you know, at least a clinical exam of smooth pursuit with a neck neutral or, or rotated uh, to see whether or not they can uh, track clearly mm-hmm. and uh, try to give me an idea about that. But that, that one requires special testing. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so, Paul, so we came up with the diagnosis of, of cervicogenic dizziness. What is the best treatment for it out there? Or is there a best treatment for it out there, I should say? Uh, maybe there's some the, the recommended treatments may be a, a combined approach. I would say, if, uh, depending on your impairments that you find, it's certainly manual physical therapy 
for um, any impairments in the musculoskeletal system in terms of range of motion, joint mobility, um, you know, the muscle performance, especially of the upper cervical spine. So a lot of times the upper cervical joints, as well as the related muscles, suboccipital, sternocleidomastoid in particular, uh, are areas that you need to address with your manual physical therapy. But then if there are any dizziness complaints uh, or imbalance, uh, you know, vestibular rehabilitation can also be very helpful um, in combination. Um, so you know, I think primarily, though, you would look at the neck, uh, especially if it's abnormal afferent activity stemming from the cervical spine, and the upper cervical spine in particular, that we, you know, after you do your examination, address those impairments, and usually it's through manual physical therapy. And then with supportive therapeutic exercises in terms of 